You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual You've seen these stories. They pop up in our news feeds and on our Twitter feeds and our Facebook feeds on a nearly daily basis. I'm talking about the feel-bad story disguised as a feel-good story. This week in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that there's this cute little blonde six-year-old boy with a really bad case of diabetes, and he was out selling pumpkins to raise the money he needs, money his family needs, to provide him with the life-saving service dog that he needs, a dog that will alert the boy when his blood sugar drops to really dangerous, potentially lethal levels. The piece takes an attaboy tone throughout. Good for you, kiddo. You get out there and you raise that money. And the kid did raise $5,000, which is one-fifth of the $25,000 the dog will cost. So yeah, four more Halloweens and this kid is set, provided he's not dead. This summer, news channel KTSM, first live local, reported this supposed-to-be-heartwarming story. A six-year-old girl was out there selling lemonade to help pay for her mother's chemotherapy. Quoting from the piece, Sophia's brother, Jonathan Castro, told KTSM, first live local, their mother has colon cancer. He said Sophia does not fully understand what that is, but knows her mom needs monetary help because she's stopped working. I'm making lemonade because I want to help my mom, Sophia said. You go, girl. You get that job at age six to pay for your out-of-work mom's chemotherapy treatments. The home you save may be your own. There is no shortage of these stories. A couple weeks ago, heartbreaking story in the New York Times went viral. Two-year-old kid in Ohio dying of cancer. This kid loves Christmas, so his family decorated their house early so he could have one last Christmas and then the whole neighborhood joined in. Everyone decorated their houses. And then the community came together to stage a Christmas parade on the street where this boy lives. And Santa came to the house. It's really hard to sum this one up without getting weepy. It is a beautiful story. There are legit feel-good elements in this story. But buried within it, the feel-bad detail. Though we ought to be ashamed of ourselves angle. The hospital where this little boy was treated, his name is Brody Allen, that hospital isn't charging Brody's family for his care. So on top of losing their child, Brody's family isn't going to be bankrupted by medical bills and his parents and siblings aren't going to lose their home, which is great for Brody's family. But what about all the other families of people being treated for cancer at that same hospital? The teenage boy down the hall dying of the same cancer but whose case hasn't elicited the same outpouring of sympathy. I guess fuck him and fuck his family. Bankruptcy for them. Want your medical debts forgiven? Then you're going to want to make sure the most photogenic, sympathetic kid in your family gets sick and not some moody, spotty teenager. Another example, one that isn't about kids, from a couple years back, after the massacre at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, where a homicidal maniac killed 49 people, wounded 53 others, Two of the three hospitals where the injured and dying were taken announced that they wouldn't be charging the survivors or the families of the dead for their care. Those debts would be forgiven. There were people shot in Orlando around the same time, maybe even on the same night. This is America. But their crushing medical bills 
weren't forgiven because they didn't win, I guess, this extremely perverse lottery. They weren't lucky enough to be the victims of a mass shooting or the victims of this particular mass shooter, I should say, because victims of past mass shootings that failed to elicit the same outpouring of sympathy and support, they didn't see their medical bills forgiven and victims of future mass shootings won't either. So the lesson for all of us, all of us Americans is this. If you get shot in the United States, be careful to get shot in the right time and in the right place and by the right maniac. Or you're on your own, like that kid with diabetes or that kid with the lemonade stand whose mother has cancer. Jamie Peck wrote something for The Guardian about a kid selling lemonade to pay for her mother's cancer treatments. Not the same kid. A different kid. Namaya Martinez of La Cruces, New Mexico. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. I apologize, La Cruces. She opened a lemonade stand of her own after her mother got sick. ABC News portrayed Namaya's plight as a feel-good human interest story, Peck wrote. One radio show called the story heartwarming. We should call it what it really is, a damning indictment of everything that's wrong with America. 12.5% of Americans are uninsured still, and the Republicans who run everything are doing whatever they can to drive that number up. But even Americans with health insurance are bankrupted routinely by medical bills. It doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to live like this. It isn't this way in Canada or France or Germany or any of the other Western industrialized nations. Right-wingers hate all of those countries now because fuck our allies. So you might want to point out that people don't live this way in Israel either. This insanity, our healthcare system, it has to end the insanity and our healthcare system has to change. And that's not going to happen until we recognize these stories Stories about terrified children raising money to pay for their parents' chemotherapy treatments with lemonade stands for what they are. Propaganda designed to make us feel good about a system we should be ashamed of. Feel bad stories and the drag of feel good stories. Dog shit rolled in powdered sugar. Don't swallow it. Single payer now, Medicare for all now. So when you see one of these stories, one of these feel-bad stories, tarted up in the drag of a feel-good story, jump into the comments thread, scream and yell, call the reporter, email the reporter, call the newspaper, call the lousy local TV news station and yell at them for insulting your intelligence and for contributing to this problem. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, the free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues. Lots of my A's and joining us in the micro, Ellen Forney, author of Rocksteady. Brilliant advice for my bipolar life is here to talk about dating with bipolar disorder and other mood disorders. We had a long conversation. It starts in the micro and our conversation continues into the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. The show is twice as long and no ads Ellen and I continue to have that conversation. So if you're interested in the subject and you're interested in what Ellen has to say and you haven't tried out the Magnum yet, this might be the month to subscribe to the Magnum and give it a try. All right. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. My boyfriend and I recently adopted a dog that we love dearly. The only problem is that our sex life has gone completely downhill after we adopted our dog because he has separation anxiety when we're not in the room with him and when we want to have sex. And then he will also jump up on top of us if we leave him in the room with us. So that's not an option either. 
Um, and then he is crying and barking if he is not with us in the room and we are having sex because he can't hear our voices and he freaks out when he hears sex sounds. So if you have any advice on what we can do to calm him down or to distract him or if anyone has ever had this problem before, it would be great to hear some advice. I'm going to kick this one out to anyone who's had this problem before. Are there any dog trainers out there listening right now? You might want to call in and let this person know what they should do because this is outside my not only area of expertise but my area of affection because I don't really like dogs. And if I had a dog that was doing this to me, I wouldn't have a dog a couple days later. Dot, dot, dot. But question for you, caller, what happens when you go to work? Are you with this dog 24 hours a day? Presumably, there are times when you have to leave the house and the dog can't hear the sounds of your voices. And does he just freak out and bark his fucking head off all day long while you're gone? But feel sorry for your neighbors. If not, there's some moment where he chills the fuck out and gets used to being alone. My advice, not knowing anything about dogs except how much I dislike them, and I say that owning two dogs, living with two dogs that belong to my husband and my son, crate train that thing. When you guys want to go in the bedroom and be alone, put it in the crate. Close the door. Put a blanket over the crate. Let him bark for a while, and you'll be done fucking before he's done barking, or he'll be done barking before you're done fucking, one or the other. Hi, Dan. Um, I am a... 26 year old um, at risk youth but this question is not about me it uh, has to do with a close friend of mine and uh, I have a scenario here for you and we're just kind of looking for some guidance as to how to handle the situation because it's kind of touchy the story goes my friend who is a female in her 30s who uh has a boyfriend she lives with and they have a kid together and he has two older children from a previous relationship. And, um, she came home this past weekend and had realized that her, her youngest son had shit his pants. So obviously she's running around the house and he's screaming, oh, I shit my pants. And she's you know, trying to find wipes and stuff to take care of this problem. Well, she goes into the bathroom and is sitting down on the toilet and looking underneath the sink, which is in front of her for, like I said, for the wipes and stuff to take care of the situation. And as she's going to get into the cabinet underneath the sink, which is facing directly to the toilet, she notices that the door to the cabinet is a little bit ajar. And she opens the cabinet and she finds the older son's phone. And she picks it up and she looks at the screen and it is recording. And it's been recording during the time, which was just about 15 minutes since she had been home. And so it's pretty apparent that this older son of hers, but it's not hers, it's her, her boyfriend's son from a previous relationship is spying and trying to record her in the bathroom since she's been home. I didn't know what to say because he's 16 years old. And apparently his father talked to him about it and 
she asked, like, what the fuck? And he just kept on saying things like, keep your voice down. Don't say anything about it. Just get over it and move on. And I can understand maybe if he was like seven to 10, maybe 12 years old, having a boundaries conversation with him would be sufficient, but he's 16 years old. And I feel like he should know what's right and what's wrong, especially when it comes to those types of things. And she said she doesn't feel uncomfortable or, or in a, you know, unsafe environment, but Every time she brings it up, it's hush-hush, and we don't want to talk about it. And I just wanted to know what you thought about the situation and if you had any insights, and yeah, anything would help. Hush-hush, and I want to talk about it, isn't the right move here. This is Scream Shout, talk about it a lot. Because this isn't just about right and wrong, although it is definitely about that. It's not just about that. This is about consequences. This is about potential lifelong negative consequences. If this gets hushed up, if this isn't addressed directly and confrontationally, the lesson this boy is likely to take away is not that big a deal and I can get away with this. And that is not the lesson you want this boy to take away from this moment. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there right now who are thinking, call the police. That should have been the first move. Call the police. This is a sex crime. And I appreciate that impulse and I share that impulse and this was definitely a violation and I would want to look through that phone, look through his computer, see if there are other videos. Probably this wasn't the first time that he did something like this. That said, and I would want to take his phone from him and take his computer from him. A 16-year-old does not have a constitutional right to carry what can be a porn production studio around in his pocket. During his adolescence, particularly if he has no goddamn judgment or common sense. But calling the police, filing charges, which your friend has an absolute right to do, means that this kid is highly likely to be charged with a sex crime and if convicted, land on a sex offender registry, potentially for the rest of his life. Ending his life, socially, educationally, professionally, at 16, for something that he did that was a violation that was stupid, that might have been impulsive. And while your friend could certainly avail herself of the criminal justice system to punish this kid, and I do think this kid needs to be punished, I hesitate to end this kid's life or to risk ending this kid's life by going first to the police. So the intervention, I think, first needs to be familial and it needs to be 10 tons of shit falling on him, not dad covering for him, not this being unmentionable. There has to be accountability and there has to be consequences to get through to him that this is something that he cannot do and something if he continues to do, not he risks ruining his life. He will ruin his life. He will get caught. He did get caught. If he continues to do it, he will get caught again and he will face charges and he will be convicted and he will land on a sex offender registry and that will be the end of his life. For him to understand that, for him to really get that, for that to pierce his adolescent brain, it can't be something that isn't talked about. It can't be something that your friend isn't allowed to address with him directly. If his father is hushing this up, he is complicit. And your friend might want to think about whether she wants to be with a man who is complicit in covering this up and setting this kid up for failure, but also setting other women up to be his victims in the future. And there are other small children in the house that have to be taken into consideration. So, phone confiscated, computer confiscated, searched phone and computer. 
grounded, not allowed to have a phone or a computer until he's 18, which is less than two years away. And a sit down with a lawyer. Go find a lawyer who does criminal defense and a sit down with a lawyer who can explain to him what has happened and what, what has happened to other men who have done the same thing and what will happen to him if he does this, if he continues to violate women's privacy, continues to surreptitiously make videos like this, he will go to jail. He will land on a sex offender registry and he will destroy his life, the rest of his life. And your friend needs to speak with this kid, not hush-hush. God, I, I, I want to slap her boyfriend, not hush-hush. She needs to speak to him about how violated she feels, about how unsafe she feels, about how this has ruined her relationship with him and also imperiled her relationship with her, his father and that this is not a victimless crime, that she is violated, that she is his victim. And she has to live with him, at least for now, unless they have the money to pack this kid off to a boarding school where there is no internet access, which might be a good idea. He harmed her. Part of accountability is having to look in the eye of the person that he harmed and hear that and apologize for that and take responsibility for that. All of that has to happen. And I think that has to happen first. And I think uh, as much as I hate this kid for what he did, the consequences of going to the police are so dire that I do think the first move has to be within the family. The second move, if he continues to do this, you're going to have to involve the police. Hi, 35-year-old straight male with a little bit of a shit show on my hands. Um, about two and a half months ago, my girlfriend that lived with me and her two kids just decided um, to leave me and get back together with her ex-husband um, to try to put her family back together. It was a complete shock, left me in a terrible emotional place. So for the past two and a half months, I've been trying to put that together and figure out what went wrong. And so the other day, just a couple of days ago, I reached out to her to get closure because I um, have had a really hard time not knowing why. Literally one morning she was there. And I left and came back that afternoon and she was gone, packed and gone. So I emailed her. She got back to me. I spoke with my family who she had reached out to a couple of days before I just found out. And she basically told me that nothing worked out when she left to go back to her ex-husband Four days after she packed, like she packed her stuff, unpacked it. Four days later, she knew that he hadn't changed and it wasn't going to work. She's now renting a room, so she's single, living on her own, you know, just renting a single room and then co-parenting with her ex. Um, but that put a huge knot in my stomach. And now I love this woman and I care about her so much, but I feel like I'm a fool for wanting to take her back or thinking about taking her back. Um, have there been any developments since you recorded your question? A ton, actually. I met with her and basically she told me that she wasn't seeing anybody. She was single. And it, so she went out of town for five days after we met. And when she came back, um, she finally came clean and said that she is seeing somebody. Um, she's been seeing them for about a month, month and a half. And that it's, changed everything and she's just so 
so like she just doesn't answer anything straightforward. Okay, um, so, so you're not getting back together with this woman, I hope, or not even thinking about I, it. Anymore. I can't. No, I can't. I can't. I can't get back together with somebody that's just not honest and and straightforward and right. And and, that, and there for me. Right, and, and there for you, and and you know, someone who would disappear on you like this, right? Mm-hmm. For, for yeah. someone she'd already. Like, for someone she'd already left once before is someone who'll disappear mm-hmm. on you three months from now for someone she just met. Yeah. I, it, it's exactly what's going to happen. If, if I even contemplated it's, it's, it's hard. Logically. I know, I know for a fact that it's, it's done. It's over. It has right. to be. And you got, emotionally, it's like, I'm, I'm so stuck on her. It's, it's awful, but there's no way I could. You need to tell her, you need to make sure that she understands that you are not her safety school, that you're not her fallback position. <laughs> Right. And that's exactly what I feel like. And it feels like she's just moving me down a totem pole. Right. Like, well, get out from that, under that's exactly that what I feel like. stack of dudes. Uh, can I ask a, <laughs> a random question? Um, you said that she moved back home with, she moved back in with her ex and her two kids. And now she's renting a single room. Are the kids okay? Where are the kids? You know, man, I don't know. That kills me. Cause they're, they're not my kids. They're living with their father right now. And they're, full time as far as I know, cause she's renting a room somewhere and they're not allowed, like not necessarily not allowed, but she's just renting a room. So the kids aren't at the house with them, her okay, so at all. But the kids are so safe. They're, they're the with kids their are housed. Yeah. They're, with, they're with a parent. Yeah. Uh, okay. So mm-hmm. here's what you need to tell parent. you. Here's what you need to tell yourself. You know, as you sit there with the heartache of this relationship ending, there was the person that you thought you were in love with and you found out the day she disappeared, not just left you, not just broke up with you and then wanted to circle back and maybe see if you guys could pick back up. She disappeared on you in the cruelest possible way. So there was this person Mm -hmm. you thought you were in love with before that happened. And now there's this person, this different person. Now you know her better. You know something about her that you didn't know before she pulled this, something disqualifying, something that indicates that whoever you thought you were in love with before, that person didn't exist, doesn't exist. Yeah, she did so true. So your heartaches for a fiction. Yeah, it's for somebody that truly doesn't exist. Right. So you can you can mourn that the death of that person who never existed, and, and the investment that you made. You're in love with someone who didn't exist, and you kind of built that person up, right? Mm-hmm. But but that's not you didn't do anything wrong. Like one of the things we do in a long term relationship. We want from a partner and we give to a partner is we build them up. We, we, you know, in some yeah. ways we see that we round them up to one. We see them as better than they are. And hopefully then they feel some obligation to live up to that better person that we believe them to be and vice versa. Yeah. We live, we live sure. up to the better person that they see us to be. And, you know, in a healthy, functioning, non-toxic, low-conflict relationship, two people who grow together can become better people as they strive to be the person, the, the rounded up one that they know that they're not, but that they are honored to be rounded up to. So you didn't do anything wrong by loving the person you thought she was. She failed you by not being or becoming that person, by not earning that round yeah. that you gave her. Holding that bag, because she just literally, she was there at 7 a.m. and poof, gone by 2 p.m. that day. So it was like, I was just left standing there with like, what the fuck just happened? Like, what did I do? Did I? No, no, no. You didn't do anything. What the fuck just happened is she informed you in that moment that she was not and never was the person you were thought you were in love with. 
So I don't want you to move yeah. into your next relationship cynical or bitter, right? Because yeah. you're, you're going to have to round somebody else up to one, and then you're going to see the ways in which you know you're going to be consciously aware of the ways in which they fall short. But then you can't say to yourself, "This is a lie," right? Or, or the, you know, I, I'm not, mm-hmm. in, or you know, I'm not in love with this person. It's almost like. 70% of my love for Terry is genuine and 30% of my love for Terry is fictional. <laughs> so that she was okay. a fiction, entirely a fiction, disqualifies her from yeah. being loved by yeah. you. But there we in your future relationships, some rounding up that you're going to have to do, some loving them into that fictional area where you're treating them and, and regarding them as, as better and perhaps more whole than they actually are in, you know, in hopes that they will become better and more whole. And they are doing the same for you. So I just want you like because this is so scalding and traumatic what you just went through and what you have to do is cauterize the wound so you don't go forward into your next relationships and screw them up by being angry yeah. about your past relationship or not able to trust or invest in anyone in the future because you're always going to be on the lookout for the ways in which that they fall short or how they might be playing you or or lies they might be telling you. That leads you to believe, ah, they're just as bad as her. Yeah, being played is is obviously at the top of the mind right now because that's kind of how I feel. Well, there's a little bit of playing in all relationships. Right? Yeah, touche. Have you ever been 100% honest and transparent with anyone that you've dated? No. Okay. And you're not a bad person. So it's, it's fair. No, not at all. So in the future, promise me now, in the future, when you're with somebody and it's you know, it's your 0.65 or 0.75, you're rounding up to one and you detect a little bit of dissembling or playing or even the occasional lie or an infidelity that happens in long-term relationships that should survive that you're not going to then read into that. I got to get out of here before I get hurt. Like I did last time with somebody who played me in a vicious negating way. Cause there's a little bit of playing in all relationships, hopefully not in a vicious negating way, but a little bit. Yeah. And you don't want to attach too much weight or importance to that when you encounter it in the future. You have to view it in some sort of perspective. For sure. It's, yeah, it's been three months since she took off, so it's, it doesn't sting near as much. But, it's, yeah, it definitely stings still. Well, get out there and date somebody well, else. As they say, the quickest way to get over someone is under someone else. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for calling, Dan. I really appreciate it. My pleasure and good luck. And I'm sorry. Hey, no worries. Thank you. Bye. Hi, I'm queer woman living in the Midwest. I'm dating my first straight man. It's kind of weird because he won't let me hit the prostate. This is something I've never encountered before and I really don't know what to do. I've had two long-term boyfriends before and they were both queer identified and were totally open to butt play and super sexually explorative. I've never had this problem before. I've been with this guy for a little bit over six months and I really love him. I feel like we have great sex, but I love, you know, I love going down on him. I love giving him head, but he will not let me put a finger in his butt or anything like that. And I want to respect his consent. So I haven't pressured him and I try to talk to him about it. And he just says he's not into it or he doesn't want to try it. 
This dude was like 40. So I don't like, I'm just, how did he live his whole life without having his prostate stimulated? I sent him some articles about like prostate stimulation and I recommended that he masturbate, but he just acted awkward about it and he doesn't know how to talk about it. So should I just let it go? I just want him to feel good. I feel like it's going to be so good for him. I don't know, Dan, what should I do? Um, advice from a gay man to this queer woman to get this guy to let me hit the prostate. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to leave his ass alone. That's what you're going to do. You're going to take no for an answer. Not getting to play with his ass, something that you enjoy, maybe the price of admission you're going to have to pay to be with him. You've told him that you enjoy ass play. You told him you would enjoy playing with his ass. It sounds like having his ass played with, at least at this moment, is not something that he is interested in experiencing. And so my advice to you would be drop it. The one thing least likely to grease the skids for successful ass play is pressure with tension being a close second. And right now you are pressuring this guy to let you play with his ass and you're framing it as something you want to do for him. And maybe it is something you want to do for him, but it's not something he wants done to him. So my advice to you would be fucking drop it. Stop bringing it up. Stop sending him articles. Stop grieving during the blowjobs you're giving him about the fact that you can't put your finger in his ass. He knows that you would like to go there and he has filed that away. You've only been dating him six months. And here's the thing. If you ever want him to get comfortable with the idea, you have to drop it. You have to stop pressuring. You have to stop asking. He knows that you would like to go there. He has filed that away. Paradoxically, you're likelier to get in his ass if you stop asking and stop pressuring. He knows you want to go there. If in six months or a year or two years or five years, he decides that he would like to experience this, he may bring it up. He may circle back. He may ask you if you're still interested in doing this. He won't get there. He won't get more comfortable with the thought of ass play if you're pressuring him the entire time. Drop it now. Maybe a year from now, you'll be stimulating his prostate. Keep pressing him on it. Keep asking and asking and asking and asking and asking. And you will never get near his prostate. So drop it and you might. Keep it up. Keep the pressure campaign up and you'll never. All that said, some people have hard limits. Some people just don't want to do a thing. And we have to respect those hard limits. No means no. And the last thing you want, if you want him to enjoy anal, is for him to offer you his unenthusiastic consent to get you figuratively off his back about this and then for him to have a bad, potentially even traumatizing experience the first time someone plays with his ass because he was doing it for them and not doing it for himself. So drop it. Hi, Dan. My name's Josh, and I'm 34 years old. In January of 2017, I had moved to Los Angeles, where I lived there for the next year and a half. I decided to move back home because, well, I was feeling a little homesick, and I felt I had enough experience in L.A. that I could go back and live in my small town. Shortly after I made the decision to leave L.A., and while I was still in L.A., I met Deanna. Deanna is a very awesome girl, and we headed off right away. I had to let her know fairly early in our relationship that I was already planning on leaving and going back to New York. We talked about it for a while and I had promised her that I would move back eventually. Five months later, I did move back to Los Angeles and moved in with Deanna. Unfortunately, after being here for two weeks, I'm homesick again. I realized that maybe moving away from my hometown or where I was was a mistake. 
I still really, really like Deanna and we get along really well. She's fantastic. Honestly, she might be more the best girlfriend I've ever had. I want to go back. I want to go back home. I'm afraid that if I leave, I'm going to hurt her. And that's the last thing I want to do. Sometimes the answer is simple and obvious, but unsatisfactory because it doesn't offer the resolution or the solution that you would like. You moved from LA where you were miserable, back home where you were happy, back to LA where you are again miserable, but you met a wonderful person who lives in LA. But you don't want to stay there. So you go to her and say, I hate LA, love you, I'm moving home, would you like to move home with me? And then maybe she will, maybe she won't. If she has a career, if she has family, if she has roots in LA, probably she won't. There are people out there who make the long distance, even the bi-coastal relationships work. Maybe you two could make that work. Odds are greater, though, that you two will have to part. So, like I said, the simple and obvious but unsatisfactory answer. Hey, Dan. I'm a 40-something cis lesbian-identified woman who recently getting out of an eight-year relationship has started to date again, likely. I have bipolar and spent some time in a mental health facility. I'm not ashamed and I'm very open about my disorder to um, try to help with destigmatization. The question is, when do you roll this out in the dating process? Joining me in the podcast booth to help tackle this question, cartoonist Ellen Forney is the author of Rock Steady, Brilliant Advice for My Bipolar Life, a self-help handbook on maintaining stability with a mood disorder. Her 2012 graphic memoir, Marbles, Mania, Depression, Michelangelo and Me, was a New York Times bestseller. And I'm proud to say she's someone I've known for years. How are you? Good. How are you? We've known each other since... 1993 forever also if you ever visit seattle and you come up to capitol hill on the light rail system you will see ellen's beautiful art all over both capitol hill stations ellen is an iconic seattle graphic artist well thank you so much dan and i'm so happy to be here it's great to have you you've poured so much of your life and and so much of your hard-earned wisdom into your new memoir uh, to help other people with mood disorders achieve how would you describe stability well, actually, um, so my memoir was the was Marbles, mm-hmm. Mania, Depression, Michelangelo, and Me. It's been really difficult to kind of describe my new book, Rock Steady, because it's it's comics, but it's not really a a graphic memoir, memoir exactly. So it's it's self help. There's but it's there's, so much. I, I I read it over the weekend. It's so much more than just self help. Uh, it's incredibly entertaining. It's incredibly insightful. Um, it's going to be a huge help to anyone with a mood disorder, but also to anyone who loves or interacts with or dates or knows somebody with a mood disorder, which is everybody. Right, right, exactly. Well, so Marbles basically was my personal story with a lot of very specific information folded in. Like rather than just I tried CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, but actually putting in an exercise And then um, I heard from readers for years about how helpful they found that and how a a number of them told me that they used it like a manual. Mm -hmm. So I figured that I should do a manual. So that's what Rocksteady is. So in in Marbles, those sort of tips really were digressions and about your own experience. And this is much more comprehensive 
uh, Rocksteady is. Exactly. Uh, and more self-helpy. Right. And a guide. Right. Um, I'm a big fan of Smedmertz. Can you tell us who Smedmertz is? <laughs> so Smedmertz is basically my uh, strategy that I present in Rocksteady for maintaining stability or for taking care of yourself pretty much for anybody. So it's an acronym that means uh, sleep, meds. If you take meds, take your meds, uh, eat well, uh, see your doctor or otherwise stick to whatever treatment uh, works for you, mindfulness, meditation, exercise, uh, routine, sticking to a good routine, T is coping tools, which is a little bit of a cheat, and support <laughs> system, Smedmertz. And Smedmertz, because you're a graphic artist, is your mascot. It's a little character who pops up throughout the book. Yes, a, an, an awkward little snaggletooth monster is how it's been described, and I can't really argue with that. Yep. Uh, it's You know how I love things like DTMFA? Uh, mm-hmm. I love my acronyms, and I just right. think Smedmertz is a terrific example of that kind of brand new term, word, acronym, and right. it's really smart and arresting. Thank you. And it's not just, I think, something that a person who has a mood disorder would benefit from embracing. We could all use better coping mechanisms. We could all use uh, you know, to go see the doctor to get our exercise, to stick to a routine, to eat right. The one really that I think is most important is sleep. And that's why it's first. And that's really important for everyone. It really is. You're rolling your eyes. Are you having trouble sleeping yourself? I had had surgery on my shoulder a month and a half ago almost. And I've had to wear this giant sling. Mm -hmm. I believe despite our long history, this is the first time you've seen me in a sling. Mm -hmm. I've had to wear this sling 24 hours a day for the last five weeks. And I I have to take my wedding ring off at night because I can't sleep because I can feel it. I'm having to wear this enormous contraption. All right. night long, I basically haven't slept for more than a couple of hours at a go for weeks. Right, I'm losing right. Losing my mind. Well, how, well, exactly. I'm losing my mind. I mean, that's just the thing. It affects everything, right? I mean, sleep is, you know, whatever, your, your cell degeneration and your digestion and pretty much every body process that you can think of. But then also your mental processes. It, it affects your mood. Like you just said, it's driving me crazy. It's a little bit like uh, I've compared it to the grief I experienced after my mother died where I would just be somewhere randomly and burst into tears. Mm -hmm. Like five weeks of no sleep, I have been somewhere randomly and burst into tears. Right. I'm like, oh, this is as bad as the trauma of my mother's death. Right. This not sleeping for a month and a half. Right, right, exactly. And then if you have a mood disorder on top of that where your, your, your mind and your system is more fragile, it can be that much more dangerous. It could send you off into a manic episode or into a deep pit of depression. Right, right exactly. Okay, so let's get quickly to the, the caller's question. Mm-hmm. When do you roll this out in the dating process? This is somebody with a mood disorder. Somebody, she says she has bipolar disorder. Um, she's stable. She's healthy. She's perhaps uh, read your books and has a Smedmertz doll on her <laughs> on her bed or on her nightstand to remind her. Um, when do you? Her question is really simple. When do you roll this out? When do you disclose? And how do you disclose? I, I think it's pretty much the same as anything that is really personal and important to you that doesn't come up naturally in conversation. But that has a huge stigma attached to it. Well, sure, sure. I mean, if you think about maybe. Uh, Having a really weird kink, if I could use the word weird. <laughs> well, some of, one of the things that makes kinks fun is that they're transgressive. So if kinks yeah, are just all blasé sure, about kinks, okay. then it kind of drains the joy from them. So. Right. Okay. But so when do you tell? I mean, when do you tell someone that you have this thing that's really important to you, that's an important part of you? Um, you make that decision 
depending on the context and depending on how you feel about it. How important are they to them? Well, your kinks are something you're going to want to involve your partner in. You're going to want to have this kind of kinky sex ideally with your partner or with your partner's permission if they're not interested and they're willing to allow you to explore those other people. Um, Your mood disorder isn't necessarily something that you're going to want to involve your partner in in the same way. Maybe you're going to want your partner's support. They're going to be a part of your support system, but they're not implicated in your mood disorder in the same way or involved in it in the same way. Are they? Well, it's it's complicated. It's definitely complicated. Um, so the last S in Smedmerts is your support system, and that's the people that are close to you. Mm-hmm. And one would assume, ideally, that your partner is close to you, and they're the ones that you're sleeping next to, and they're the ones that get the get the brunt of your unpredictability if you if you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it, so they are an important part. Of, of your uh, support system. But like with a kink, I want you to do bondage with me. With a mood disorder that you're disclosing, I don't want you to have a mood disorder with me. You right. just have a right or need to know about this so that you're part of my support system? Well, certainly with somebody that you are dating, ideally they don't immediately become part of your support system, like an, like an intrinsic part of your support system. I mean, are, are you Because most people you date are going to disappear from your life in short order. Oh. Well, I mean, we date a lot of people. We partner with very few. Right, right, right. So, how how interested is the is the caller in in this person's being their partner? Or, I mean, if she wants to vet them right away, be like, if if they're not going to be able to deal with this, if they have this idea of this stigma and can't be reeducated, mm-hmm. then it's not worth my time. Exactly. You know? So you can so you know if she's comfortable you know she can do that. I have to say I I know a whole lot of shoulds. You know mm. I should uh take the time to to talk about it calmly and you know this is this is something that is an, an important part of me. I just want you to let I would just want to let you know that I have this thing and 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 really be aware that maybe he will you know reject me for it and I'll be ready for it. you know like all these different cautions that I might take. Mm. But, uh, but with him, I just blurted it out (laughs) (laughs) and you know, it turned out okay. We've been together for nine years, so it's not what I would recommend. The blurting out, the blurting, the blurting. But, but one of the things that I really, really try to make clear in rock steady is that you can mess up, Mm -hmm. that you can mess up. You can do all of these different shoulds and and you know uh, m- most of the time you can either fix it or live with it or go on one door closes another door opens you know it's not like some gymnastics move that if you execute it perfectly you win like you can execute this disclosure imperfectly and still win even if that right. person if that person reveals to you in that moment you know as i like to say when you tell someone you're pause or you're kinky or you're trans or whatever you're telling them one right. thing about you their reaction tells you everything you need to know about them mm-hmm. including whether there's someone you could date or tolerate or re-educate if they're just reacting impulsively or negatively out of ignorance right. um and it's kind of a sorting hat moment you get to put that sorting hat on their head and they tell you whether or not they deserve you or are the right person for you to invest any more time or emotional energy in and you want to, I think, roll out the disclosure in a way that demonstrate you have some emotional intelligence. So you're demonstrating to them that you are someone they would want to be with. But their reaction, you shouldn't fear. Their rejection, even, you shouldn't fear. Because if they can't handle you, they don't deserve you. Mm-hmm. 
And then the other thing to remember is that you could do all of those things perfectly. You can be, you know, protecting yourself and you can be all ready for it. And, and then let's say it doesn't go well and you get a rejection. You're like, oh, I didn't realize I was, I thought that I was ready to be rejected and now I'm, you know, distraught and rejection's still going to hurt. Yeah. It's a balm to tell yourself they didn't deserve me. It's still going to sting. And so, so then you turn to other tools. Okay. Then you, then you turn to your journal and drawing or you turn to your, your best friend and say, you know, I, I, I thought it was going to go okay and it didn't and I feel like I messed up and, you know, they'll say, no, you, you did, you did everything just right and mm-hmm. let's go get some ice cream, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, on the flip side, uh, we're talking with somebody, you know, to someone who has bipolar mm-hmm. disorder. Is that, is that the term of art? Should I not call it bipolar disorder? Do you say someone with bipolar? What do you say? Well, a lot of people say bipolar as a noun. To be honest, I'm still getting used to that. Just like anything, the language changes over time. You don't want to say to someone they're disordered. Right. I'm just wondering if that itself reinforces the stigma. But anyway, that wasn't my question. So somebody who has bipolar, is bipolar, um, is going to roll that out at their own at a time of their choosing. Is someone who's dating someone who's bipolar have a right to know? Is it something that you are obligated to disclose? I think eventually. I mean uh, – I mean, wouldn't you wouldn't you think that about anything that's an important part of who you are? Yeah, I, 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 of course. But when something is so deeply stigmatized, when it's about your health, some would argue, I think, that you don't have an obligation to disclose. I don't think you'd want to be in a relationship with someone if you have a mood disorder where they might encounter you, you know, if you're slipping into depression or becoming manic and not know how to react and not know what's going on. I think you'd want your partner to be informed. My question is, does your partner have a right to be informed? You know, as someone, as someone who has bipolar myself, you know, and not being in that other position, I, I, I feel like I would be speaking for someone else in a way, Mm -hmm. but I think, I think, yeah. I mean, most people who have bipolar have, a lot to deal with, whether they keep cycling, whether they cycle sometimes, whether or not they're not cycling right now. What but do you maybe mean by cycling will. quickly? So um, cycling would be if you're going through some sort of mood episode. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, if, you, uh, if you're manic. So if you're not sleeping very much and you're really speedy and your judgment gets off and you're really impulsive, that would be mania. Okay, so, so you might want your episode. partner to know that you're bipolar in case – this happen partly so they can support you i mean it it can be hard i know if your partner who is caring and warm and concerned uh says you know honey you're you're talking really fast and you're interrupting me do you think you know do you think maybe you're whatever like he doesn't he doesn't say you know like are you taking your meds Uh but you know it would be a not unfair question which I would resent and be frustrated about and and have to listen to. Getting back to the caller's question, when do you roll it out? Is there a time? Would you put a date on it? Like two months in, three months in, six months in? Or case by case? I I, I guess I would say case by case. I I think that um, you and I have talked about, you know, uh, if you have a kink and rolling it out, oh, let's say, I don't know, anywhere between two dates to uh, I think a couple months might be a little long well maybe it's similar to rolling out the kink because I think people should wait about three months I think if you're dating someone that you presume to be vanilla who knows maybe you'll disclose your kink and they'll share it or have their own kinks to disclose and you win Uh, but three months 
they know that you, maybe you've had enough vanilla sex for them to be assured that vanilla sex is something that you're good at too and enjoy as well. Whereas if you just blurt it out on the first date in the first 30 seconds, unless you met them on a kink app or dating site or event, you just blurt out your kinks. They may think that that's all you're interested in or all you're about, but you've demonstrated to them that vanilla sex and you're a good time and that this is something that's a part of your life. It's not all your life. Maybe it's similar to this. If you blurt it out in the first 10 seconds, does it put it, does it make it... Have you not given them a chance to see that you are stable, that you are fun, that this isn't all you're about and you're not getting on a roller coaster with me, but this is a fact about me that you would need to know if we get more serious from three months on? Well, I I would go back to one of the things that's really important that the caller said, though, is that she is open about it, that she is open about it and that she feels strongly about that. Um, in her um, priority of decreasing the stigma. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there is a good chance that she, she that, it, that it might be appropriate for her to tell sooner than later. But she asked us. Like she is open about it and wants to decrease the stigma, but she is asking us from a dating strategy point of view, when? When to disclose? That was her question. Right, right. To someone new, someone that she hasn't known very well or very long who, although she lives openly and her friends and family know, maybe her coworkers, that some new person she met on OkCupid, maybe it's not on her profile. And there is that question of then when to tell this person. Right. And my recommendation would be a few dates in or a couple months in. Right. Right. Um, and uh, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wrote the book. I'm not telling you. Well, That's you know, a, my, my hot so, take. I mean, I'm curious guess, what your informed lived experience take right. is. Well, I'll say what my own lived experience is. Um, it's it's different now from before Marbles came out in 2012. I'm very out, very publicly. Here I am on the radio, you mm-hmm. know, talking about it. It comes up really quickly in conversation because one of the most benign questions that people ask is, what do you do? And I say, I'm a cartoonist. And they say, might I know anything of yours? And I say, well, I wrote a graphic memoir it's about my bipolar disorder. And part of that is because of my confidence from all of these years, mm-hmm. knowing myself and knowing that I'm okay and that I have plenty of company in what I'm dealing with. And part of it is really feeling like being, uh, being out and telling my personal story is a very important part of getting rid of the stigma or at least decreasing the stigma. What if, did you tell your current partner? Well, it's hard to say. <laughs> I was visiting another. We didn't really date. Mm-hmm. We just kind of hung out and then slept together pretty quickly. <laughs> and I really, I told him by accident, um, kind of, well, sort of by accident. I he was he was in my hotel room. It was late at night, and I had to take my meds. And I had my meds in my hand, and he was in the shower. And I had to decide if I was going to be like all, you know, like stigma busting, you know, like this is before marbles came out. Mm-hmm. Stigma busting, you know, like I'm I'm going to take the pills in front of him and be bipolar and be fine because it's fine or do I or do I wait and take the cautious route and he came out of the shower and I still had my meds in my hand. And so I just blurted it out with absolutely no sense of what I would do if I was rejected. Or and you're still together nine years later. So the blurt out method in your personal experience works well. Although he does say that the blurt was a concern, <laughs> that it was a concern. And his, his uh, take on it, we were just talking about this recently. His take on it was that um, I was interesting enough and that the rest of me kind of was compelling enough that he would just kind of hold that in the balance 
and 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 keep on and see what happens. Can we keep you for a couple more questions? Absolutely. Hey, Dan. I'm a a 35-year-old virgin female, and I have a weird weird situation where I spent most of my life thinking I was asexual because I didn't know that I was bipolar. And this summer, I had been taking antidepressants for the first time, and it triggered the rapid cycling, uh, and I spent a lot of time hypomanic and suddenly found my sex drive. So at first I didn't really know what was going on and I started looking to date. I haven't really met anybody yet, but I did start looking to date and then I realized about, oh, being bipolar and I'm hypomanic and no wonder I have a sex drive now. And then I'm thinking to myself, what the hell? So, you know, when I'm not hypomanic, I am really, really seriously turned off by the idea of getting down and dirty with anybody. I don't want to touch anybody. I don't want them to touch me. I don't want to see them. I don't want to be seen. I don't want to have anything to do with anybody. It really squicks me out. I do masturbate. I do uh, watch porn, but I just don't want anyone else involved. And now that I'm hypomanic, I'm like imagining really, really wanting to do the deed with somebody and kinky everything. I just want to do all the things. And I'm thinking now, what do I do? Because obviously I'm starting to get treated for bipolar and I'm not going to like feel like this all the time. Already my hypomania is slowly waning and I'm starting to have my feelings change. I really, for a couple of weeks, just wanted to like sex and cock. And now it's starting, the idea of it is squeaking me out. So how can that be fair for me to get in a relationship with somebody when mostly I probably am going to be turned off by having sex with them, except for sometimes when I'm really going to want to want it. So this is just another variation on the disclosure. Well, yes and no. I, I, I would I would have a lot of questions for her. Um, wh- how, what, how did her bipolar manifest before her diagnosis? Because she would have had hypomania before the diagnosis. I mean, you don't get diagnosed with something and then, you get know, the symptoms. and then get the symptoms. Right. So she would have experienced hypomania before. And she was describing the period of time before her diagnosis as feeling like she was asexual. Mm-hmm. So, so. Well, maybe she began to manifest symptoms of bipolar and then had these episodes where suddenly she was very sexual or very horny uh, and got diagnosed and just sort of gave us a wonky timeline. Okay. So we'll assume a wonky timeline and that hypomania is, is new to her. And so is desire that also new during these hy- episodes of hypomania. Mm-hmm. So hypomania is not a sustainable s- state. So it's not like... It's something you want to avoid. Well, mm, that is really complicated <laughs> because hypomania feels great. Mm-hmm. Hypomania feels great. Um, it it de- often does not disorder uh, a person's life. You just feel really great and very productive and really on top of things. I mean, if I could bottle hypomania and sell it, I would never need to work again. But you can't maintain hypomania. It uh, it means for someone who's bipolar one, like me, who gets full blown mania. Um, it's, it comes with a whole lot of poor judgment and, um, really, really hard on my body. And then I crash into depression. So it's not like you want to put yourself in a position where you're kind of waiting around for a 
an episode of hypomania right so that you can indulge right. your partner in sex it's not like you, right. it's something you want to look forward to right or engineer well let, actually let me let me back up a moment and say what so hypomania is not full-blown mania it's mm. it's a, a mild mania so um but people with bipolar 2 have mild mania hypomania and they still have crashes into depression. Mm-hmm. The reason that she was put on an antidepressant, I'm assuming, is because she was misdiagnosed as depressed. So, so she does have to deal with depression. Uh, otherwise, she wouldn't have been treated. And then rapid cycling is really dangerous for people who have bipolar or who have that potential, I guess, because it sounds like something that she hadn't really experienced before, you know, the, the cycling. So... Um, I think we have to assume that it's under some sort of control. If it's her question is, I'm only interested in sex intermittently when I'm experiencing hypomania. Is there a partner out there for me? And if so, how do I disclose this? It seems like her question really is about an unpredictable desire. Right. Where I I think some of what's going on is unpredictable crisis. So hypomania might feel uh really great um but it definitely does have that depressed side of it and what what she would be saying to uh to a partner is i'm gonna be up and down um like like every now and then i'm going to go through a crisis pretend every now and then my cat dies and i go through grief you know Mm -hmm. like I don't know. Maybe that's really a terrible example. <laughs> <laughs> I already used my mother's death as an example, so right. I think it's all game. But so basically, saying I uh, 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 attaching her um, disorder, hypomania, mm. to something that is going to be like intimacy and connection with her partner, I think is getting dangerous. So telling a partner that uh, she has bipolar and that and that she is taking care of it as best she can and that sometimes it is going to mean that her that her uh, libido is unpredictable then that's that's that could be the the issue mm-hmm. and she suggested maybe that means an open relationship which never her but she's never had a relationship before that sounds like a big leap into a lot of communication that um that sounds uh maybe not is i don't know would you say that's realistic uh i think that's a realistic long-term solution Mm -hmm. perhaps Mm -hmm. if she's in a relationship and she only experiences desire and only wants sex you know once or twice a year unless she finds someone who has basically the same libido point Mm -hmm. uh she will wind up in a relationship with someone who she doesn't want to feel pressured to have sex she doesn't want to have sex when she's experiencing zero not just zero desire low desire but disgusted Mm -hmm. by sexual activity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to have a relationship where it's where she says sometimes i want to have sex the rest of the time do what you need to do and then you get into the conversation about whether it's a you know it's an ethically non-monogamous relationship is it a full disclosure one is it i know everything is it a dadt relationship there's a lot to parse out after you decide you're going to have an open relationship because there's a million variations on what an open relationship might look like right 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 well so it's it seems like disclosing that um bipolar disorder is in the mix that there's going to be unpredictability and there are going to be a number of different things that are go- that are going to change and cycle in and out and that that's one of them and that yeah because it's a sex advice show <laughs> <laughs> and she was a sex advice that's, question that's, that's 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 one of them that's one of them hi dan i've been building up the courage to call you for weeks now 
because I really need your help to save my marriage. About seven weeks ago, I started to get really depressed. I'm bipolar, and it's quite severe. And I started to get depressed, and so I think my body went manic to kick myself out of this depression. And so now I've been manic for about six weeks, and I'm I'm quite manic to the point where my sex drive is through the roof. And I don't have a whole lot of control, and my decision-making skills are lacking. I normally have a really high sex drive, and my husband and our monogamous relationship usually can keep up for the most part, but not right now and not lately. And part of what was driving my depression was our needs financially. We're both working really hard and still not making it. And so it clicked into my brain that I needed to start escorting and acting as a dominatrix. So that's what I've been doing for the past six weeks. Um, I've been an escort in the past, so it's not a huge deal to me. I'm a very sexual and kinky person, so I enjoy it. I enjoy what I'm doing, and I feel like I'm safe and smart about it. And I really want to be able to tell my husband and share this with him so that I can continue doing it to continue helping us out financially. But I don't want to break his heart, and I don't want him to feel completely betrayed. And I don't know if that's even possible at this point, if he's going to feel like he's been cheated on anyway. But I feel like I'm starting to really be torn apart inside and that I'm disconnecting from him further and further, which really scares me. And I I don't want that. I want to save our marriage. And I need to be able to figure out how to tell him in the best way possible. So this sounds like less in need of advice, more in need of an intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it helps her any... There is a pretty high-profile case that is kind of similar. There's um, her name is Susie Favor Hamilton. She's a um, an Olympic runner and bipolar and didn't know it and went like left her family to go to Vegas and become a high-priced escort. And um, there is a lot of sensational. Uh, articles about it that you can find very easily on the internet. She wrote a memoir about it that um, I haven't read yet, but um, what what she and her husband wound up doing um, was going to a lot of therapy. Um, it was her wanting to uh, get well, kind of recognizing that that was a part of her mania mm-hmm. um, and, and, also his recognizing that that was part of her mania and dealing with it not as a not as you cheated not as you cheated not as infidelity, and not as a, but as a manifestation of this illness right exactly and so part of that now is that she works to be healthy and it's a lot of work to be healthy um, but recognizing that it's not that it's not cheating is afterwards having remorse it sounds like she's still manic i mean she says that she's still manic which is really not a time to be making big decisions that take a lot of good judgment. Like, is this the 
is this what she wants to get back into now? Escorting and doing Escorting. professional domination. A big question for me would be, does he know that she had done that before? She didn't specify, is this something that feels normal to her? Um, or or is her getting back into this really a part of of poor judgment? Which she she said, I I'm I feel like I don't have control over what I'm doing or thinking. And I do think it demonstrates poor judgment or faulty decision making or impacted by the bipolar right now because the choices that she's made, call her the choices that you're making, are imperiling your marriage, which is probably a huge part of your support system. And so you need to you need to stop right. and you need to back the fuck up. And hopefully your husband is aware that you are bipolar and probably going to have to disclose this to him because if he finds out on his own, it will be worse. And I think what you said, Ellen, was really smart. Doing the professional domination without telling him, without asking him, without involving him can be regarded as a betrayal or it can be regarded as a symptom. And hopefully he will see it if you can impress upon him that you need him to see it that way because that's actually what it is, a, a symptom of your bipolar disorder manifesting itself in your life in a destructive way and you need his help. Right, right. And she said a whole lot of things in there that um, made it seem like she's beyond her own control. I mean, she said that uh, it's, it, it clicked into my brain, she said, and, and that my body became manic and that she doesn't have control and she doesn't think that she can stop. And that's, that's really uh, her, her own cry to herself to get help, to feel that out of control and be making decisions and not feeling like she can handle it. She says they're financially strapped. And mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons that she decided to start doing professional domination is there help available to her if she doesn't have the resources? You, just, you know, get into therapy, go see a doctor. It's easy to say those things. Some people are in positions where they don't have the money to see a doctor or hire a therapist. Right. Absolutely. Well, you know, one thing about that, too, just so far as logistics go, you know, if she comes home with a sack of money. Isn't he probably going to ask where it came from? You know, like it's it, they really do need to be in communication about what's going on. Right. But if she can't afford to see a right. therapist, can't afford to get the help that she needs because this is America and everything is terrible. What should she do then? Or is that just her bipolar talking? You know, if she's raking in bucks doing professional domination, then they, she has some new money that could be spent on therapy. Theoretically, you know, is it just her sickness telling her that she doesn't have the resources to get help? Well, so far as the resources to get help goes, I mean, I think that we could talk forever about the healthcare system and in particular the mental health care system and its, its limitations and how difficult it is to afford your medications and afford, find and afford a, a, a psychiatrist or the, any sort of mental health care that, that is appropriate for you. It's a, it's a big, big issue. Like in this country right now, mm -hmm. there, are, there are things that you can do that I have three pages on in, in my book, Rocksteady. There are community clinics there. Um, you can um, kind of scour your insurance policy and hopefully you have insurance with Mental Parity Act. You should have some mental health coverage. You can uh you can go to other things that will support that, like um, support groups are generally free. Mm -hmm. And and it's really, really helpful to be around other people who are dealing with mania or have dealt with it in the past. Practically, I think it would be a good idea for her to 
get to that support group or if she has the money sitting around from doing some of this pro-dom work to find the psychiatrist, find the therapist and find someone who can have this conversation with your husband that you need to have and, and, you know, referee it. Right. And facilitate this conversation because there yes. is something difficult you're going to have to talk with your husband about that you did in the grip of mania that he has a right to know about and you're going to need to tell him. Telling him yourself in this manic state might not be the best move. Waiting a week, waiting two weeks while you line up the support that you need and you have somebody there with you when you disclose this to your husband who can help facilitate that conversation, I think would be a good idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is this is also kind of an, a good argument for making sure that your support system and your partner knows while you're stable that this is something that you might be going through. So hopefully he already knows that she's bipolar and that this might be something that she's could go through and that she is going through now. Ellen Forney is the author of Rocksteady, Brilliant Advice for My Bipolar Life, also the author and illustrator, cartoonist. Both of these are graphic. One's a graphic memoir. One's a graphic self-help book uh, of marbles. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Dan. Kind of a weird question. I work in a school, and today one of my coworkers was showing pictures on her phone of her new grandson. And one of the pictures she kept showing was him naked because um, mom's white, dad's black, and so his penis is like brown, but the rest of him is white. And then somebody all of a sudden says, hey, you really should put that away. That could be considered child pornography and you could lose your job. So just curious what you think. Even though it's her own grandson, should she not have that on her phone? Is that child pornography or was that an overreaction? That was an overreaction. If having a picture of a naked infant is child porn, basically every parent and grandparent in the country, in the, on the planet, is a child pornographer. In this day and age, though, in the workplace, I would not recommend busting out pictures of the grandchild, particularly if your intent is to draw attention to your infant grandson's genitalia and to your infant grandson's race. Genitals can often be darker in skin tone than the rest of a person's body. It has nothing to do with race mixing. It's not like her grandson has a spot of black. There's so much going on here that's inappropriate and awful. And the thing that's inappropriate and awful isn't a grandma with a picture of the naked infant grandson on her phone. That's perfectly fine and common. But everything else, the inappropriate conversation at the workplace, the bizarre racial dimension, stereotypes about black men and their penises and how this conversation and her fascination with her biracial grandson's penis kind of plays into that subtly or non-subtly. Those are the objections that you should raise with her. She shouldn't be talking about her grandson's penis in this way. And at this moment in the workplace, any conversations about penises, however old they are, whoever they're attached to, are inappropriate. The child porn isn't the issue here because that's not child porn. All the other issues are the issue here. Hi, guys. I have a debate question with my partner here in the car with me we were just watching some people walk down the road and we saw this woman she was wearing cool shoes and right as she walked by my partner called out that she had really cool shoes to let her know why we were staring at her and immediately after that he was like oh I shouldn't have done that that's cat calling and I was I kind of disagreed with that and I wanted to know your guys take on complimenting strangers in public versus shouting at women in public. (laughs) Thanks. I notice shoes when a woman's walking by and she has a killer pair of shoes on. 
I have at times complimented her shoes. I do this thing, though, when I'm about to compliment a woman's shoes. I get super gay, super duper gay in that moment. I make sure that my hands are flipping around in the air and that my voice has got a big lilt in it. And she knows, as I am complimenting her shoes, that it is not a play for her attention. I am not trying to get her phone number. It is not an opening salvo. And I have no ulterior motive. I am just a fag and a former drag queen who loves those shoes. And I set her at ease by fagging it up. This is not a tip I'm offering straight guys who want to try to upgrade from a compliment to shoes to getting a phone number. It will not work. Straight guys pretending to be gay guys. You're bad at it. It never works. Don't do it. That said, I do not approve of what your friend did. Because when you yell at someone from a car, odds are they didn't hear you. There's something about being yelled at from a vehicle that is potentially unnerving. She can't clock you. She doesn't know if you're going to start to follow her. And she may not have heard nice shoes. She may have heard something else or not heard it at all. Just knows that for a second she got yelled at by some dude in a car, which is usually not a positive experience. 99.99% of the time when some man in a car shouts something at a woman on the street, it's threatening. And women have to take those kinds of threats seriously. So your friend's Motive to compliment the woman's shoes may have been pure, but your friend was not being considerate of how she might experience that compliment in the moment in the way that I try to be considerate when I want to compliment a woman's shoes by backing it up in a huge way so she knows that it's just about the shoes, nobody the gals. So no more yelling at women from cars ever, no matter how you want to compliment them. One quick footnote here. Better to err on the side of not approaching women you do not know in public to address their appearance, their hairstyle, the dress they're wearing, their shoes. Even I'm doing it a lot less than I used to. I can't remember actually the last time I did it. Just don't do it. We should all know now that approaching women in public and talking about their appearance can make a woman feel unsafe. Let their friends and their coworkers compliment their shoes. Hi, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. My wife and I recently purchased a house that we're renovating. And the other day, I was here with our contractor and a plumber that my wife has never met. And uh, we're outside looking at a part of the project. And the uh, uh, contractor, as my wife is pulling in with her car, the contractor says, hey, let's play a joke on, on, your, on your wife. And I said, okay, that sounds fun. Uh, I didn't know what he had in mind, but he seems like a pretty good guy. And uh, anyway, so she walks up and says, uh, he, he looks at her and says, you're in big trouble. And her eyes go very wide. And he said, yeah, it's really bad. And she said, oh, my God, what did I do? And he said, uh, unbeknownst to any of us, well, we're going to have to take you upstairs and dress you in red spandex and give you a good spanking. Now, listen, we're... We're, we're very liberal and open people, but we don't really know this guy. And I had no idea he was going to say that. My wife basically looked do uh, very wide-eyed and didn't know what to say and effectively just kind of walked away. And uh, as she was walking away, the, this plumber that was with us that had never met her just said, hey, I'm Mike the plumber, and he obviously didn't know what to say either. Um, he didn't know the contractor either. So at any point... She went inside, and, and the contractor looked at me and said, she didn't think that was very funny, did she? And I, I didn't know what to say at the time. Um, I said, no, I don't, think, I don't think anybody thought it was really funny. I know he, I think he meant it in jest. Um, 
it just was a very strange thing to say out of the blue to some folks that you don't know very well. And um, later on, I wish I would have said, and this was my great comeback, you know, two hours later, hey, if anybody's going upstairs and getting dressed in red spandex and getting spanked, it's going to be me. But I didn't think about it. Subsequently, my wife feels very, she doesn't want to be alone at the house with the contractor or the workers. Um, she's feeling very, very violated. Uh, and like I said, it was just a strange thing to say, uh, just kind of out of the blue. But anyway, Dan, we don't know the social norm. The question is, what, what's the right thing to say in that situation? Um, is there a right thing to say? Is there a right? I didn't know what to say, and I don't think any of us did. So, hey, help me out. Thank you, sir. You're fired. That's the right thing to say in a situation like this. You're fired. You want to create a social norm around not saying creepy, inappropriate sexual things to the woman you're working for and proving in that moment that you have no boundaries or impulse control? You fire people who say those creepy, inappropriate things, and you tell them why you're firing them. Your comeback, if anyone's going to be wearing the red spandex and getting spanked, it's me, is terrible. I'm sorry. I know that you think you had a wisdom of the staircase moment, but that's terrible because we are building on his joke, which in a way communicates to him that there wasn't really a problem with his joke except that it it didn't land. And that wasn't the problem with the joke. The problem was that he made that joke at all. So right now your wife feels unsafe in her own home because this asshole made that inappropriate comment and you're wondering what to do. You fire the motherfucker. You fire the contractor and you tell him why you're firing him. And if you gave a key to the house to the contractor so they could have access to it when you were away, you change the fucking locks even if you demand the key back. It's often hard to respond appropriately in the moment when somebody violates a social norm like don't say creepy, shitty, inappropriate sexual things to a woman or anyone else because there's a social norm around not making people uncomfortable. There's a social norm around de-escalation. And so we, myself included, sometimes fail to push back in the moment in the way that we should. But there's still time for the pushback. And that time is now. Fire the fucking contractor. Find a new contractor. And make sure the contractor knows why he lost that gig. Even if it delays the renovation of your home for a few months, your wife's sense of safety and security are more important and getting the renos done. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the caller in episode 624, who was thinking that maybe she was little sometimes and was really stressed out and having a hard time kind of keeping her little space under wraps when she was, you know, in a position to have to be a muggle. I just wanted to say that that happens to me sometimes too, when I'm really stressed out. And it is really imperative that for me that I find some space to little, even if it's just by myself when I'm in private. And that helps me a lot to be big when I have to be big. So an idea for this caller would be to specifically plan a night to eat macaroni and cheese and watch animated movies and color or play with sensory sand or take a bubble bath with those like crayons that draw all over your shower just almost anything that can be little, just to kind of fill that need so that you can muggle when you have to muggle. I hope that helps, and welcome to the Little Club. Hi there. Uh, This is a response to the gal in the previous episode who thought she might want to explore little play. I would say, first of all, I'm in a, a little caregiver relationship, and I am the little, and I'm not a baby. I'm a big girl. 
But if your partner already lets you call him daddy, I would say that you're pretty much most of the way there with knowing that he'd be fine with it. Part of the ways that we got into it is, you know, do you have any stuffed animals around? If he's all squicked out that you're a grown woman with stuffed animals, then that's a big red flag. If you don't have any stuffies, you need to get some. And probably the first thing that I would do, definitely the first thing that we did in our relationship in figuring out that this was something that worked for our relationship dynamic was to ask him to tuck you in. Mister, would you tuck me in? And if he's game for that and enjoys it and is good at it, then I think you're good to go. And it's just baby steps from there. Hi, I was calling in response to the woman who's seeing a guy that was frequenting illegal or legal rather brothels uh, without her consent. I just want to say you sound so hot. Like, seriously, I heard your voice and I thought, wow, you sound beautiful. And then you just said that the situation was making you feel hideous, even though you know you're not. And that just breaks my heart. So please don't. This has so nothing to do with what you're not. It sounds like you've already done a whole lot of work trying to figure him out and like give him what he needs. I hope he's done half that with you. Because what I'm, I've been seeing a lot of lately is uh, women that I know bending over backwards to just understand why the dudes they're with are being shits. And the guys don't do a damn thing. You deserve so much better. Yes, definitely yell at him if he doesn't respond in a way that just opens up a whole new door as to the kind of person, you know, he's never shown himself to be able to be. Walk. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Tickets are going fast for the premiere of the 14th annual Hump Film Festival with all new films at the audiences in San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, and Olympia get to vote on and award huge cash prizes, including the new $10,000 Best in Show Award to the filmmakers. Go check out the trailer and the film descriptions at humpfilmfest.com and then get your tickets for the premiere of the 14th annual Hump in Seattle, Portland, Olympia, and new this year in San Francisco. Quickly, they are selling out. And then, of course, in 2019, 14th Annual Hump will tour the country. We're going to be in more than 60 cities in 2019 with this year's festival. Can't wait to bring Hump to you. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanceSavage. Follow the amazing Ellen Fornay at Ellen underscore Fornay. That's F-O-R-N-E. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk you and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for coming.